You're listening to Nick Treadwell's Storyville. This article was written by Ron Johnson following an extensive Skype interview in 2021 with the artist Jacques Strudel. It first appeared in the Block Switch Slacker on the 9th of April 2021. For this podcast, Ron has kindly contributed the original recordings of the interview, records from his own private collection of Strudel memorabilia, and the voiceover narration. The Return of a Maverick by Ron Johnson Part 3 Into the Abyss Published 9th of April 2021 The Block Switch Slacker It would be July 1996 before Strudel would release any new music. Ten long years would pass since he had very nearly created an international incident between North Korea and France which could well have ignited World War III and ended life on Earth. Fortunately, as you are reading this, you know that events took a safer path. For Jacques, though, he was forced into a precarious situation which would serve to sharpen his musical creativity to a point barely recognisable to his early fans. I was uh, in a tight spot. Uh, It was a very dark moment in my life. Related Jacques while sucking on a cornetto that he'd just pulled out of the freezer. I made a few calls, uh, called in a few favours and got myself on a flight to England. When Jack arrived at Heathrow, he was met by Natalie Brooks, who had been his UK publicist up until his decision to tour North Korea, singing songs promoting the party propaganda of the dear dictator Kim Il-sung. Natty helped Jack apply for asylum under the protection of the UK authorities. Although there was some doubt about his claim that North Korea had targeted and used him to promote their own regime when he had enthusiastically made an album of cover versions of their own songs. Uh, After I explained to the foreign office that my highly influential mind had been seduced and manipulated by crazy Korean ideals of military might and power and that I had denounced the regime forever, I was granted protection. Jacques' first few months in Chiswick, the borough of London where Natty resided, was spent trying to make sense of how his once successful pop music career had deteriorated to this, being branded a sympathiser for the Workers' Party of Korea, preventing him from returning home. My only crime was trying to make music that was, uh, interesting. He told me his chief method of making sense of the predicament he found himself in was by consuming copious amounts of the strongest cognac that he could. Forced isolation from his friends and family in France took toll on him. He became depressed, spending days and sometimes weeks on drinking binges in order to cope. Uh, I was hiding out at Natty's home. Uh, I couldn't risk being recognised in public. Uh, Otherwise, there would be a press scandal. So I started wearing a series of elaborate disguises so I could get out into to buy alcohol. Uh, Locals might have seen an old man with long white hair and a walking stick shuffling along the street, muttering inanely, carrying a bag full of stuffed cognac or whiskey. Uh, They had no idea it was me, drunk as a skunk. Bored, drunk and with no creative outlet, Jacques' costumes became more and more detailed to the point of being confident enough to venture to the local public house, the Four Horsemen. Uh, I got Natty to visit the local fancy dress shop and we started working on different disguises. Hunters in the pub would find themselves engaged in conversation with Bob Jenkins, a happy-go-lucky builder who'd been married three times and had 17 children, or Derek 
Lovelace, a washed-up actor whose big claim to fame was being the third man at the Queen Vic bar during an episode of EastEnders in which Phil Mitchell beheads a man for shortchanging him. There was just something about becoming someone else that was very appealing to me, Jacques confessed. I could totally vanish and become someone else for a few hours, and the further from my own persona, the better. Perhaps Jack's most complex creation, though, was Danielle Dawson, a.k.a. Dan Dawson, a chain-smoking, cross-dressing transsexual who loitered in the pub with the explicit intention of pouncing on any unsuspecting patron with ears to hear the intimate details of his, her, up coming gender-altering surgery. Most chose, if at all possible, to give Danielle a wide berth until a certain Rob Cobbles walked in the bar one cold winter night. Well, Cobbles, a washed-up small-time gangster whose best friend lives in the bottom of a glass, stumbled across the four horsemen during a self-inflicted pub crawl across town, which I later discovered had had left a trail of bruised eyes, broken teeth and shattered skulls. I was dressed to kill as Danielle, a.k.a. Dan, in the blonde shoulder-length wig, mascara, red lipstick, fake diamond earrings, a 36D bra stuffed with socks, a tight-fitting black lace-up blouse, fake nails, black fishnet stockings, leather miniskirt and bottomed off with thigh-length black patent boots. I was popping up the bar with a double vodka and coke when Rob shuffled up beside me and ordered the same. Having enjoyed or the hospitality of several pubs that night, his vision enjoyed that slightly blurry, inebriated glow. All right, darling, he remarked while waiting for his drink. Have you ever been arrested? Cause it must be illegal to look that good. I shot him a confused smile. I mean, Danielle had had compliments from men before. Usually I would get a triad of abuse from the regulars, such as, All right, love, uh, uh, you had an argument with the brick wall? Or how much did they pay you to take part in those new experimental medical trials, sweetheart? Jacques explained that they hit it off straight away. They volleyed cheap digs at one another like an old married couple, laughed about the world and drank even more. At one point he told me that there was something about me that he just could not put his finger on. I thought, well, you probably wouldn't want to put your finger on it if you knew the truth. Danielle told him she was visiting friends in the UK from France, that she was a beauty specialist, that her father was a famous French painter. The lies just got bigger and bigger as the evening got later and later. We both slipped into a state of complete drunkenness. By that point in the evening, I wasn't even trying to raise the pitch of my voice, and Rob didn't even notice. What Jacques didn't realize was that Rob had been around the block, and then some. He was an associate of Kenny the Hammer Johnson, a notorious East End thug who you couldn't even glance at mistakenly without getting a nail hammered into one of your fingers. Both he and Rob had done time together on a number of occasions. Their hobbies included armed robbery, kidnap, extortion and fraud. These were dangerous men, and Jack was in a precarious situation with one of them, who was now chatting him up. There was something very liberating about the whole thing. I'd invented a whole new person, and she was having the time of her life. I just couldn't see what I was getting myself into, though. It was around 11.45pm when things took a turn for the worst. Danielle excused himself for the toilet and made an error that would cost her dearly. I was standing at the urinals, relieving myself, when I heard the door open behind me, and then the words, What the fuck? I knew the game was up. I turned around slowly, and there was Cobbles, 
with a confused expression on his face. Stewed out of his head, Jacques had erroneously entered the men's toilet instead of the women's. I asked Strudel what happened next. A broken nose, two cracked ribs, and a face that would make a Jackson Pollock look positively pretty. But that was nothing compared to what followed. Rob reached into his inner jacket pocket and pulled out a Glock, cocked the trigger and pointed it squarely at Jack's scrotum. Give me one good reason why I shouldn't give you an express sex change operation with the help of my trusty friend here. Rob told me as I stood there with my knickers around my ankles. Well, I said, you might get asked one or two awkward questions when a man dressed like this is found lying in a pool of his own urine with his bollocks blown off, mightn't you? Take it off, he barked at me. Take that bloody wig off. I want to know whose bollocks I'm going to bloody blow off. I slowly unhooked the wig from my scalp and tossed it on the floor. Rob then ordered me to close my eyes. I really thought this was the end. I made a promise to myself there and then that if I got out of this mess alive, I'd sort myself out and get back to doing what I did best. As it turned out, Cobbles had an epiphany, and not a moment too soon. I knew there was something about you. I heard him say to me, It's you, isn't it? Him. Bloody him. He's you. I mean, you're him. You're Jack Strudel. The Strudel was well and truly out of the bag. Luckily for Jack, Rob had been a fan of his earlier work. He told Jack he would release him on three conditions. One, to leave London and never return. Two, to sing Easy Does It there and then while his knickers were down. And thirdly, to pay Cobbles ten grand in order to safely secure the evidence of said performance recorded on his trusty pocket dictaphone, which he carried everywhere. I felt like a queen bee stuck in the honey trap, Jack said as he reached for something behind the view of the webcam. When his hand re-emerged, it was holding a tiny cassette, which he inserted into a small player before pressing play. My name is Jacques Strudel, uttered a disembodied voice. It is March 22nd, 1987. I am standing in the toilet of the Four Horsemen public house, wearing a pair of fishnet stockings, with my knickers down and my manhood exposed. My God, I thought... Was this the actual recording? I'd like to dedicate this song to Rob. I owe him my life. The voice then sang Easy Does It in its entirety, albeit very nervously. Easy does it. Easy does it. One day at a time. Easy does it. When the singing stopped, Jack ejected the tape. This tape cost me ten grand, he said, waving it at the screen. Luckily, I'd set aside some savings many years before as a fallback plan. The next five years saw many changes for Strudel. Outcast from London, he found himself living in the black country of West Midlands. Natty set him up with some friends in a house share in the suburbs of Tipton. He gave up drinking, got a part-time job as a hospital porter at Blockswich General and most importantly began writing music again. He also began to build a new circle of select friends that would be essential in the next phase of his creative life. Jacques met Foxroy Hume, a self-confessed geek, at an AA meeting, being a graduate of sound design and technology. The two had a lot in common, including their drinking habits. 
Manfred Manifold, an engineer from Sutton Coalfield, was the senior advisor for a building project for NHS Trust at Blockswich Hospital. The two hit it off when Manifold overheard Jack talking to a colleague in the cafe one day about constructing a 50-foot-high monolith-like TV remote control in his garden. When asked why he should want to undertake such a thing, Strudel replied, Because then I would never lose it behind the sofa. Cardano Froome and Lol Ravi were partners in love and music. Together with singer Jimmy O'Reilly, they made up Kink Fink, an explosive pub rock band that had been drawing heavily on influences alphabetically. Unfortunately, they'd only reached the letter B. Such artists as Bowie, the Boomtown Rats, Blondie, the Buzzcocks and Bad Manners. When tragedy struck... O'Reilly, a manic depressive from Dublin, was committed to a local mental facility after he tried to kill himself by jumping from the ground floor of a 30-storey block of flats, sustaining minor bruising to his left elbow. Being a regular at the King's Arms, where the band played, Jack struck up a friendship with Lol and Ravi, who played bass and lead guitar respectively, after O'Reilly's departure. Jack's near-death experience with Cobbles had given him a new appreciation of life, not to mention an even healthier appreciation of death. In fact, having had that brush with the fragility between life and death, he began thinking more about his own mortality and what that meant. He became an avid reader of books on life after death and all kinds of spiritual matters. One of the books that changed my life and would kickstart my next project was this one. Jacques held up a dog-eared book called... The Last Breath of the Soul by science fiction writer, self-confessed alien contactee, spiritual mentor and investigative mythologist Winfrey Steinberg. In the book, published in 1985, Steinberg claims that the final breath before death not only contains the living soul, but also an encoded trans-dimensional key that secures the record of the individual's past lives in a soul library in the etheric realm. The majority of his conclusions are derived from a channeled source he refers to as Batibat, an ancient Persian magician, Magnus or priest, who died around 892 BC. As this clip from the audiobook demonstrates, Breath of the Soul by Winfrey Steinberg Chapter 2 Data Dump On the 18th of December, 1985, I woke at 3.30 a.m. with a tingling sensation between my legs. I knew immediately that it was my guide and channel, Batty Bat. The ancient Persian Magnus always woke me at the same time every night by stimulating my groin, gradually increasing the pressure until I'd submit and rise from my bed. As was my usual routine, I repaired to my meditation room and prepared to receive the ancient sage's sacred teaching. As soon as I'd closed my eyes to meditate, however, I felt a huge vibration pass through my body, starting in my nether regions and rising up through my spine until I literally felt like my brain was being blown from the inside out. My vision became blurred and the room I was in faded to be replaced by an interior made of stone. Sitting in front of me, in flowing white robes, turban and beard, was the glowing figure of a man whose eyes stared into my soul with raw intensity. 
We sat staring at each other for minutes until he spoke, without moving his lips. His whispered words echoed around my big fat head. It is in the sacred final breath of life, Winfrey, that lies the key to transporting the soul on its next journey. Expelled in that breath is an interdimensional key that not only unlocks the door of every past life you've ever had, but every other in the library of souls that are housed in the etheric realm. Over the next six hours, Batty Bat downloaded on me. He dumped my mind full to the brim with the sacred science of the soul which had been lost to humanity for nigh on millennia. Just when I thought he'd finished, his face would contort with force as he'd unleash another wave that jetted into my cerebellum with a dizzying force that had me floating in an extraordinary esoteric ecstasy. When he'd finally climaxed and pushed the last of his wisdom into me, I felt like I'd been born again. He wore an expression of total fulfillment as he inhaled deeply from a hookah that stood beside him, breathing out a huge cloud of luminous smoke that enveloped me. When the smoke cleared, Batty Bat was gone, and I was back in my meditation room. It was 9 a.m., and I rushed to my computer and started regurgitating the data soup from my gray matter. Ten days later, I had the manuscript for the book you are holding in your hands now. I was fascinated by Steinberg's hypothesis and my mind began to swim with all kinds of ideas. One of those ideas formed one night while Strudel worked his shift at the hospital. Uh, as you can imagine, being a porter at the hospital, I'd see a lot of death, all kinds, messy traffic deaths, domestic violence deaths, accidental deaths, tragic child deaths, but mostly the elderly succumbing to old age. I'd taken to carrying a little portable recording device with me to capture any musical ideas. Anyway, I, I heard that an old man had been rushed in with pneumonia and would probably would not make it through the night. So just before going off shift, I sneaked into his room and discreetly placed my gadget next to his head and set it recording. The next day, I heard that the man had died in the night, so I quickly retrieved my device and played the recording back. His breathing was just audible in the sound mix and distinctly, twenty minutes in, it began to slow and then to stop. Incredibly, I captured his moment of death, remarkable given that the tape was only forty-five minutes long. Back at home that evening, Strudel handed the recording to Foxroy Hume, who was able to enhance the recording and isolate the breathing. Uh, I was transfixed, explained Strudel. I never imagined that death could be so beautiful. The whole thing had a sacred prayer-like quality about it. That's when the penny dropped and my next project was born. My quest to compose a piece of music that incorporated the recordings of those final gasps of air. An album of true soul music. Jacques set about a truly bizarre task to collect as many recordings of those final breaths as he could for inclusion on his new work. It uh, was a risky undertaking. I I'd learn on the grapevine about an admission that was a code CTD, uh, close to death, and set to work. I was like a ninja, getting my recorder in place before anyone could see me, hoping I got a clear recording of that special moment. 
most of the time I, I got was the sound of friends and family visiting or various nurses or doctors shuffling and about to administer treatment. If I was lucky, I'd catch someone snoring or even sleep-talking. One old guy I recorded had an entire conversation with his dead wife. Others muttered nonsensical phrases. It was a labour of love to keep going, but occasionally I'd get that last moment, that last exhale before the transmutation of the soul. Meanwhile, during the day, Jacques was composing the music that would accompany the recordings he was making. I'd acquired an old piano, and much to the annoyance of my housemates, I began hammering out melodies on it. I really wanted strings for the album and eventually managed to find a local quartet that was willing, though I did not tell them what else was going into the recording. I gave Foxroy the task of clearing up the recordings and enhancing the sound. I wanted the album to be a living prayer, a communion for the soul. After two years of work, the piece was nearly complete. I just needed one more recording. I had my eye on a guy who had just had a triple heart bypass and got the word his number might be up. I did the deed that night and waited patiently. The next morning, Jacques was summoned into the hospital by his manager. Disaster had struck. A nurse had found the recorder while giving the patient a bed bath. Subsequently, hospital security had reviewed CCTV footage and had noticed him going in and out of the room. His manager played him the recording, which luckily only featured copious snoring and shuffling of bedclothes. Uh, the game was up. They asked me for a full explanation. I didn't lie, as anything I could make up would have been equally as bizarre as the truth. I was suspended without pay pending an inquiry and had to hand over all the recordings I'd made. The police were involved and everything got really messy. Soon, the press got hold of the story and made a meal out of it. Once again, Jacques' name was Dirt. The telegraph ran with Sick Strudel's Library of Death, while the Daily Mail wrote Washed Up Pop Star Seeks to Exploit the Dead on New Album. Uh, I was immediately vilified. It was as if I'd killed those people myself. Strudel was arrested under suspicion of invasion of privacy and eventually dismissed from the hospital. Four months later, he was convicted on a guilty plea. In summing up the case, the judge said, You sought to invade the privacy of the dying for your own personal enjoyment and advantage. You breached that sacred moment that should be reserved for family and you should pay the full penalty of the law. On September 5th, 1994, Jacques received a six-month prison sentence and was ordered to pay a fine of £10,000. Not only that, but he was ordered to pay the families of those deaths he'd recorded, £2,000 each in compensation. During the hearing, sections of his album were played to the jury by the defence in order to demonstrate the vision of the album and to ensure to the families that their loved ones' audio remains were to be treated with the utmost sensitivity. What the court heard moved some relatives to tears and others to hurl words of abuse towards Strudel. One angry relative threw a shoe which hit Jacques squarely in the face. Some witnesses who were in the court that day have broken silence many years later. One describes the music as piercingly painful and haughtingly inappropriate. There have been rumours down the years that in one section of the album Jacques could be heard oinking like a pot-bellied pig. The judge ordered all recordings of the album to be immediately destroyed. I could have coped with the prison sentence, but to have my work destroyed utterly broke me. I honestly thought that this was the end. Jacques told me, 
I asked him to tell me what his three months in prison were like, but he refused. He just looked at me and said, Uh, it is not something I want to talk about. The court had ordered the master tapes of Breath of Life to be destroyed, and all that remains of the album is a two-minute excerpt that Jack has hidden away all these years. With his reputation in tatters, Jacques was released from prison with little hope that he would ever record music again. That hope was rekindled, however, when he returned home to an answer machine message from the renowned independent film director, Alan Barker, which went something like, Hello, you big cunt. I'm making a new film and you're doing the soundtrack. I'll be in touch. That film was the now controversial cult classic Scumbug, described at the time as one of the most horrific films of the sci-fi horror genre. Scumbug charts the discovery of a new species of insect that uses a human host to feed on, burrowing up the nasal passage and slowly feasting on the brain. Jacques was pleasantly surprised by the message, even though he'd never met Barker before. He knew of his two previous films, Transmuter, the tale of a man who, following a freak accident with a microwave oven, is able to shapeshift at will, and the ultra-violent Petrol Head, banned in 67 countries for its depiction of one man's obsession with fire. It holds the world record for the highest body count in a single scene of a film. Uh, it was a no-brainer, really. My, my team was to be paid handsomely. I had access to everything I needed. And what had convinced Barker that I was his man was the fact I'd just been in prison. He said there was no one else who could write the music for his film, which made me feel wanted again, especially after the loss of Breath of Life. The only brief I received from Barker was that he wanted the music to be the blood of the film. Following a meeting between the two, Strudel agreed to take on the project. Throughout 1995, Jacques worked on ideas for the soundtrack. He was given a print of the film, which he watched repeatedly until ideas materialised. Barker shot the film on grainy black and white film stock, giving it a bleak, foreboding atmosphere which reminded Jacques of a place he'd once visited several years earlier called the Black Country Museum. I was transported back to the time when the air was full of fire, steam and soot, of men drenched in sweat as they hammered, smelted and cast iron, of how it made me feel intensely claustrophobic, and I thought that's exactly what this soundtrack needs. 
What Jacques created was truly revolutionary, a fusion of orchestra and heavy industry, a unique soundscape, utilising a library of recordings gathered at the Black Country Museum by Foxroy and machinery designed by Manfred in the studio. The album is an assault on the senses. I wanted the piece to be void of all melodies. I wanted the listener completely unhinged to free fall through an antonal world of hammering and clanking noises, of the hissing and roaring of steam representing tension. It's not an easy listen and it was never supposed to be. Scumbug was due for cinema release in early 1996, though film censors around the world had different ideas, with an almost blanket ban around the world due to unprecedented levels of violence. The only place it was actually screened was Turkmenistan. Despite its ban, Scumbug was both revered and rejected equally by critics. In The Observer, Philip French wrote, Don't bother getting any popcorn because you won't be able to keep it down. While Mark Commode on the BBC sung its praises saying the film was a triumph, particularly commenting on the music. It made me feel lightheaded. It was like it was slowly strangling me. released on DVD in July 1996, it found an appreciative audience and has a cult following even to this day. Strudel's difficult and innovative score slipped quietly into the world alongside the DVD. Being his first new album in 10 years, loyal fans snapped it up, though listening to it felt like some kind of test and one that only very few passed. Another long period of inactivity passed in which Jack jumped through several inconsequential jobs including security guard, postman, barman, ice cream man and eventually librarian.
Jacques's next musical odyssey began one dark winter night in 2001, following a trip to his dentist. A routine root canal procedure had gone horribly wrong when the offending molar became infected, causing excruciating waves of pain. Uh, I was in a terrible state, uh, despite taking enough sleeping tablets to kill a small horse. I was in terrifying fits of pain. At one point I tried listening to James Blunt's You're Beautiful on repeat to numb the pain, but it only made things worse. Jacques found that the only thing that would take his mind off the pain was screaming as loud as humanly possible, much to his housemate's dismay. Thinking on his feet, he set up his microphone and began recording. All told, he ended up with six hours of incessant screaming, shouting, whining and crying. The following day, after getting emergency treatment, Jacques listened back to the recording and realised it might have promise as a piece of musical art. Uh, it was raw and highly disturbing, but it had an edge that I knew I could work with. Jacques struck while the iron was hot. He got Manfred to construct a giant ceramic mouth with holes filled with concrete representing teeth. Foxroy sourced a pneumatic drill, the most powerful wet and dry vacuum in the world, and a huge pickaxe. It was a therapeutic experience, uh, laying into those mock molars with my power tools, uh, and the recording really brought out my anger and rage. The album Root Canal was released in April 2001, consists of one long continuous track, 47 minutes long. Initially, sales were slow, but then an unfortunate series of events became associated with the album as highlighted by a BBC TV show called Watchdog. Tonight on Rogue Traders, the continuing story of a trail of mysterious deaths that all seem connected to this album, Root Canal, which contains 47 minutes of continuous screaming, banging and drilling. Its creator, Jack Strudell, has said that the album was inspired by a bad case of toothache, but a few weeks ago we were contacted by the relatives of three unfortunate souls that recently died under mysterious circumstances. Daniel Beddows, 47, found at his home in Bristol, had been cleaning his upstairs windows, lost his balance on the ladders, fallen and later died from his injuries. A copy of Jacques' record was found on his turntable. Jamie Ashcroft, aged 35, who had been out hiking in the Peak District, was found by a couple of walkers having fallen from a hundred foot ridge. Root Canal was found playing on his walkman. And lastly, mother of three, Carol Westcott, aged 52, was driving home from work one evening when she'd lost control of the car and collided with a brick wall. Jacques CD was found in her car stereo. We have since been contacted by 17 other relatives whose loved ones died suddenly after all while listening to Root Canal. So, is this just all a coincidence? 
or is the disturbing oral landscape Strudel has created having a lethal psychological effect on his listeners? Well, I decided to confront the reclusive French musician while he was doing his weekly shop under the guise of a superfan. I managed to track him down. Well, I'm here at Tipton Asda, armed with a copy of Root Canal, and I've just spotted Strudel in the frozen food section. So let's go and get this baby signed. Hello, mate. Mr. Strudel, isn't it? I'm one of your biggest fans. Would you mind signing a copy of your album, Root Canal? Uh, yes, no problem. Great. Oh, how's your tough doing now? Uh, you seem uh, familiar to me. Uh, I seem to recognize your voice. Uh, who shall I uh, dedicate this album to? Oh, how about Matt Albron of Watchdogs Road Traders? I've been receiving some interesting reviews of your album, Shack, from relatives of listeners who have mysteriously died in very suspicious circumstances, and the common denominator seems to be your 47-minute opus, Root Canal. Well, um, I, I can't really comment. Uh, uh, oh, is that the time I need to go? Hey, oi, you've left your basket here. Come back. I want to ask you about Daniel, Jamie and Carol and your friends who died in mysterious circumstances after listening to your album. Don't you think the relative deserve an explanation? Don't you think the public deserves to know about your shady past masquerading as an artist? Eh? How, how about nearly burning your bandmates to a crisp in 1969? That you were once a notorious helium addict? Were you also not a sympathiser for North Korea's hideous regime? which subsequently got expelled from France, not to mention narrowly avoiding an international incident. Where do you think you're going? Get off my bonnet. Are you not a criminal associate of East End thug Rob Cobbles? And how about telling us about your time in prison after being convicted for breaching the privacy of those dying in hospital? Uh, you are wrong. Uh, it is a mistake. Uh, I was just trying to express my art, tr trying to create something that is beautiful. Try telling that to your victims. And that was that. Strudel has not been seen since, which is a shame because I wanted to see if he knew any cheap dentists. Anyway, we at Watchdog would like to advise anyone thinking of listening to his album to maybe think again and try maybe ABBA instead. After the footage was transmitted, the public had practically formed a posse in order to lynch Strudel. Well, I just kept driving. I never went home. I just drove through the night or the next day. I didn't have a clue where I was going. I just wanted to be as far away from those who had judged me as possible. Jacques knew he had ended up somewhere in Scotland, and when he eventually stopped to rest his weary eyes, he saw a sign before him which read, Plus Garden Abbey, St. Benedict, God will be thy judge. That is when I realised what I had to do in order to escape the inevitable public shaming. Jacques brought his hands together in prayer and raised his eyebrows at me through the digital connection. He told me he entered the abbey, told the monks he wanted to devote his life to God by taking a vow of silence. The monks had long talks with him in order to establish his commitment, but they did not judge him by his misdemeanours, only by the innocence of his soul to create art in order to understand the world. He was accepted as a monk into St. Benedict's, finding peace, beauty and a community of dedicated souls. The silence was food for the soul, the only time it was broken being the daily Gregorian chants which he particularly loved. 
I felt I had found a part of me that was missing. Uh, the outside world, which had so coolly criticized me, was kept at bay. Uh, there was no TV or radio, just the silence where I could create anything I wanted. I was home. I was a brother again. Jack Strudel was not seen or heard for another twenty years. His past endeavours, his music and art were forgotten. Until, that is, the world fell into the grip of a deadly foe that rose up from a fiery pit of hell toward the end of 2019. Jack watched the world change quickly from the safety of the Abbey Lockdowns swiftly became the norm across the world, driving the populace into isolation, something he had had experience with. Though any contact with the outside world was strictly forbidden, Jacques had managed to smuggle in an old TV in order to keep up with the news. One day towards the end of 2020, Jacques was meditating quietly in the darkness of his humble room when a powerful, etheric light from the window suddenly burst in, throwing its illumination directly onto the TV. It only lasted a few seconds and then the room fell back into darkness. Jacques was intrigued and turned on the TV. Uh, on the screen I saw a small, pompous, old-looking man uh, speaking at the camera. He looked awkward and ashamed. I could see that the shadow of this man's ego was blocking out the light of his soul. As I listened to his incessant self-righteousness, I began to feel a dull, numb pain in my anus that told me something was very wrong. I realized that this man was a leader of others with power and influence, and I immediately felt drawn to sit at the piano and compose music that I felt appropriate to accompany his verbal diarrhea. It was the first time in twenty years that Strudel had felt inclined to write music. He felt so strongly that a divine presence was influencing him that he spoke with the abbot, Brother Robert. Uh, I told Brother Robert that it was important that this music be heard by those with ears to listen, that it contained a divine message. Brother Robert explained that in order to take on this mission, Jacques would have to leave the abbey, but he would be going with the brother's blessing. So it was that on Christmas Eve 2020, Jacques left the bosom of the abbey to pursue his holy task. Things began to fall into place quickly as soon as I got back to the black country. I met up with Foxroy who was living on a narrowboat on the Tame Valley Canal, kitted out with a state-of-the-art home studio. Foxroy invited Jack to live on the boat with him and once he'd explained the reason for being back, he agreed to help. It didn't take long for the other pieces to fall into place with God's help. In fact, by the first week of 2021, the Tipton Symphony Orchestra was fully on board, their conductor, Charles Chelsea, being an avid fan of the Strudel brothers. On January 25th, recording took place at Tipton Village Hall, along with Jacques' vocals. Foxroy handled post-production under supervision from Jacques and by the end of the month Jacques Strudel sings Matt Hancock was complete and slated for release on April 16th, Strudel's 78th birthday. The NHS was the first healthcare system in the world to roll out the vaccines for other deadly diseases like TB, measles, mumps and rubella and meningitis C. 
I'm so proud We can now add COVID-19 to that list The fall in the number of cases has flattened In some parts of the country like Kent, Essex and some parts of London it is rising It shows us this fight is far from over and how we must all play our part and stay We've got help on the horizon And we can all see that with the vaccine So don't blow it now And of course This shows why the deployment of the vaccine is so important Even with this mass vaccination program For the next few months we will not have sufficient protection Through the vaccination program this is always the most difficult time For the NHS anyway For the winter months And with the number of cases flattening again We've all got to do our bit And not put more pressure on the NHS to do that, we must keep respecting the rules Where we are and take those sensible steps that we can all take Washing our hands, covering our face, making space between people respecting that social distancing and the rules that come with it we can't stop that now just because the vaccine is And even if you've had the job, you're not immune. The vaccine will not fully protect you until seven days after you've received the second dose. And we don't yet know if it will stop you from passing on the disease to other people So we all have to keep acting as if we can still pass it on that's the safest way to get the number of cases down and keep people safe. I hope that COVID will become a treatable disease by the end of the year.
given his age, I asked Jacques if this might be his lasting legacy. Uh, well, if it is, so be it. I know that some of my choices in following my art have been seen as controversial, but as an artist, I have to be loyal to my muse. To deny one's creativity to me is like being deprived of the right to breathe freely. And anyway, who could argue against God? I thought this a good place as any to end our conversation. I was glad that my admiration for Strudel had not dwindled as a result of our talk. A lot could be learned from his high morals, even if they had landed him in hot water. We said our goodbyes, and as quickly as his face had appeared on my screen, it vanished. Three days later, I received a call from Plusgarden Abbey. It was the abbot. He told me he had something important to tell me concerning Strudel. You know that divine light that he witnessed? Yes, I replied. Well, it was me. You see, my room is across the courtyard from Jacques, and that night I'd been installing some new batteries in a particularly powerful torch that I'd acquired in order to do my rounds at night. I was testing it when it must have shone directly into Jacques's room momentarily. Why didn't you tell him? I asked. Because he had a glint in his eyes I'd not seen before. And who knows? Maybe I'd shone that light for a reason. God does move in mysterious ways, you know. The line went dead. I smiled. It seemed the Jacques Strudel story just gets stranger and stranger. The end, or was it? On the 26th of June 2021, shamed Matt Hancock was forced to resign as health secretary and Strudel was once again compelled to remix his music with sung excerpts from Hancock's resignation letter. I've been to see the Prime Minister to resign as Secretary of State for social health and care. I understand the enormous sacrifices that everybody in this country has made. And those of us that make these rules have got to stick by them. And that's why I've got to resign. to thank people for their incredible sacrifices and what they've done everybody in the NHS across social
is a writer and journalist living somewhere in the Midlands. He is the author of Double Decker, the unofficial biography of Carol Decker, several unfinished novels and producer of several radio documentaries, including The Life and Death of Nick Treadwell. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nick Treadwell's Storyville. Please subscribe if you liked what you heard and be sure to check out my Substack blog, Letters from Storyville, at nicktreadwell.substack.com.